1: The Fun Factory. Written and read by Chris England. Chapter 3. The Wow Wows. The next morning, I woke early, realised that I was hungry, and was reminded of one of the hard and fast rules of the travelling life. Never, ever miss a hotel breakfast. My roommate, Freddie K Jr., was dead to the world, so I dressed and went down without him. On the way, I tapped on the door of Tilly's room, It took a minute or two to get a response, and then she opened the door a crack and blearily peered out. Come on, sleepyhead, I said. Hotel breakfast. Tilly groaned. I think I'll give it a miss, she started. No, no, get dressed. Come on, I insisted. We don't have to be at the theatre until twelve. Let's go for a walk. Explore a bit. We're in America. I don't feel like we've actually arrived yet. I feel like we spent the last fortnight arriving, Tilly muttered, but she finally relented and agreed to join me shortly down in the dining room. My spirits were even higher after an excellent breakfast of strong coffee and scrambled eggs on toast. There was a wide variety of ways in which they were prepared to cook eggs, evidently, but scrambled was the only one I was absolutely certain I recognised, so I had that, and then set off to make my first foray into the big city with Tilly yawning by my side. At the end of West 63rd Street we came to a park entrance and strolled through onto a tree-lined path. The noise of the streets, the horses' hooves, the trolleys and the automobile engines faded behind us. "'This reminds me of Hyde Park,' Tilly said with a smile. "'Our first walk out together, do you remember?' "'Of course.' "'Yes, and then tea at the Trocadero. I was most impressed.' "'I'm glad to hear it,' I said, "'remembering the echoing void that particular afternoon had created in my wallet. "'In fact,' Tilly went on, "'it's not so very different from London altogether, is it? "'The traffic, everyone speaking English, "'and that theatre could have been shipped here from any English town, brick by brick. "'The weather's better,' I said, "'and indeed New York was enjoying an Indian summer.' Like they have in India, I mean, not the kind enjoyed by the lads in the feathered headdresses. Hmm. Come on, I said, aren't you even a little bit excited? We're in America. One big city's much like another, I suppose, but wait till we start crossing the country. See the wide-open spaces, the prairies, the rocky mountains. Yes, well, we're going to be in here in New York for a couple of months, aren't we? And unless someone books us onto one of the circuits, we could be home by Christmas. We're going to be a hit, don't you worry. They love the Carnos over here. They haven't seen the wretched wow-wows yet, Tilly muttered. We strolled on through the trees in silence for a while. Tilly, I said eventually, there's something I want to... I mean, there wasn't ever a chance on the crossing to talk about... To talk about? Well, us. Tilly kept her eyes on the path straight ahead, nodded slightly, said nothing. You know how I feel about you, I ventured after a moment. I thought I did, she said. We've been special friends, you and I, Arthur, and you know that you mean a lot to me. "'but I've twice been in a position where I looked for your support, "'and you didn't give it.' "'I know,' I winced. "'Once when I was sacked at that time we were caught pretending to be married, "'and you chose to stay with Carno rather than leave with me. "'I know, and if I had to do it again, "'you preferred your obsessive little competition with Charlie. "'I did, I know. "'And again when I came back from Paris, "'precisely because you'd been so lovely to me there, "'and so sad and lost, "'and then you turned your back on me. "'I did.' And I'm sorry, I didn't understand. Please let me apologise again. Your apology is accepted, Mr Dando, she said, with exaggerated formality. The path took us past a sports field of some kind, a nice round open space that would have been perfect for a cricket pitch, except that it looked like it was marked out for some other game, which some players were practising. One of them suddenly shouted out, Strike two! Which was a little on the nose, I thought. But even so, it was hurtful. Arthur, you hurt me, she went on. We can be friends, of course we can, we can be good friends, we are good friends, but if you want more than that, I need to know that I can trust you to put me first, to put your feelings for me above this stupid rivalry with Charlie, for example. You know it was Charlie who got you the sack back then, don't you? I muttered. So you say, but I don't see how you could possibly know that for certain. I did know it, just as surely as I knew anything, but it was never easy to speak to Tilly about the ways Charlie had done me down. She never seemed prepared to believe the worst of him. It was infuriating, but I let it go. "'Are you and Charlie courting?' Tilly laughed. "'Courting? Good heavens, no. No, no, we're friends, that's all. Sometimes he likes to play at being romantic, but it's just one of his characters. You know that about him, surely?' He's always playing a part of some kind, and sometimes he likes to play at courting, that's all it is, just a bit of fun. And it is fun sometimes to have a man make a fuss of you. We strolled on a little further. I wondered whether Charlie knew he was just playing a part, or whether he himself had a quite different impression. You should get to know him better, you know, Tilly said. He's a nice chap, deep down, and he doesn't make friends easily. He told you that himself, did he? Yes, he's really quite shy, you know. Shy? Yes, why do you think he keeps himself to himself so much of the time? I'd always put that down to arrogance myself, a contemptuous disdain for the rest of us who simply couldn't understand how hard it was to be a genius. So you're friends, then, I said. Why shouldn't a woman have male friends? You'll be wanting to vote next, I said. Till he gave me a hard punch on the arm for that one. It's not easy for me sometimes, you know. I- I'm the only unattached girl in this company, so I really have to be one of the lads." You surely don't think I should only socialise with Amy and Emily and Muriel? Of course not. Well then, so I'm going to be chums with all you boys, aren't I? Not just you and Charlie. Stan and Mike, I know. Albert and Bert seem perfectly agreeable. I haven't really spoken to them much yet. That Frank Melroyd has a way of looking at me that... Oh well, never mind. What? Nothing, it doesn't matter. I'll have a word with him. You will do no such thing. Well, I said, as a clock somewhere outside the park began to chime the three-quarter hour... We'd best get back to the theatre, hadn't we? Tilly took my arm, and we set off back the way we had just walked, this time in companionable silence. At least I'd broached the subject, but I wasn't altogether sure that things were any clearer than they had been. Still, it seemed that if I was going to make sure of Tilly, I was going to have to curb my desire to compete with Charlie. I glanced over, and she gave me one of those smiles. She was worth it. She was most definitely worth it. And I'd still need to keep a close eye on him, I thought. The company convened in the green room at the Colonial Theatre at noon, and my colleagues seemed to be all the better for a good night's sleep. There was a gale of laughter as Tilly and I arrived, and at the centre of it was Stan Jefferson. Everyone liked Stan. His laugh was incredibly infectious, and transformed his whole visage, making it seem like his eyebrows were trying to fly off the top of his red head. "'Whatever is it?' Tilly asked, and a couple of helpless gigglers simply pointed at Stan's feet." He was wearing maroon-coloured carpet slippers, with a nice little embroidered bedtime candle on each toe, very much the sort of thing wee-willy-winky might have worn to gad about the town. "'You forget to put your shoes on today, Stan,' I said. Hmm. he said, winding himself up to tell the story again. "'It's the darndest thing. I put my shoes out last night to be cleaned, you know, as you do, and this morning they were gone. I asked the porter, and he said they don't actually clean shoes in hotels in this country, so someone must have just walked off with them. My only pair, too.' By now Tilly and I were laughing along with the rest. Some ordinary fellow, probably, just walking along the corridor, minding his own business, then, hey, what do you know, free shoes! Ha 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 A blob of tan-coloured sauce plopped at Stan's feet, dripping from the strong-smelling fried sausage he was clutching. Breakfast or lunch, I pointed. Fellow in the street selling them from a stand, he said, taking a bite. It's called a Frankfurter. Three cents or two for five. Marvellous! "'Alf Reeves was amongst us then, "'arriving unnoticed in all the merriment, "'and he cleared his throat to get our attention. "'Morning, everybody, or afternoon, is it, just? "'Ha! "'I hope you all had a good night's rest "'and are refreshed and ready to give of your best today "'at four and eight. "'Yes, Alf,' we chorused. "'Wide awake this time? "'Yes, Alf!' "'Keep the noise down, will you?' "'Charlie Griffiths muttered, pretending to be having a nap. "'Alf acknowledged this witticism with a long-suffering sigh.' Now, before we talk about the arrangements for your accommodation here in New York, I need to have a word about behaviour. Here he waved a letter on fun factory paper above his head. The governor has made it clear that he expects you all to maintain the very highest standards of propriety while you're representing the Fred Carnot Company. Ooh, came the jocular response from the room. Some of the towns we may end up playing over here are quite prudish. There is a very strong, what would you say, churchy element... Maybe not here in New York City, but certainly once we hit the road. Some of the vaudeville theatres we could be visiting have been fighting a running battle against elements in their communities that would like nothing better than to close them down completely as dens of iniquity. Shame. So if you must, Alf stopped, searching for the right phrase, and alternatives were immediately supplied from all sides, so you wild oats, practice the blanket hornpipe. Play a little rump scuttle. Sss, Bert Williams sniggered. "'Seek a companion with whom to make the beast with two backs.' "'Oh, Charles, you are awful.' "'My dear lady, that was Shakespeare.' "'All right, all right, that's enough,' Alf cried above the smutty chuckling. "'If you must indulge in any of those extraordinary things, "'then please try to do so with the utmost discretion.' "'Oh, courting, you're talking about courting.' "'Frank Melroyd was just catching up. "'Simmer down, you lot, please. "'We shall be in New York for the next few weeks, "'and Mr Griffiths here has secured rooms.' "'We shan't all be staying together, I'm afraid. "'Or perhaps you're relieved to hear that, eh? "'So the single lads, Charlie, Stan, Arthur, Albert, Frank, Bert, Mike and Freddy, "'you're in four rooms on 43rd Street, two in a room. Got that?' "'We nodded and Alf went on. "'The married couples and the single girls, well, that's just you, Tilly, isn't it, "'are to be accommodated in a nice house over on 48th Street.' "'Tilly and Amy started giggling about something, but I was a little disappointed. "'Tilly was to be five whole blocks away.' Now, both of these buildings have very, shall we say, attentive landladies. The governor has made it abundantly clear that any suggestion of moral turpitude will result in the immediate termination of your employment by the company. Moral turpitude? What's that? Fred Parr asked. It's the stuff they were just talking about, the rump scuttling and the blanket hornpipe, his wife said, nudging him quiet. Alfred said his piece, though, and wrapped up the meeting. Well, there it is. Here's the addresses. Back here at three, everyone. Freddy came over, pretending to bite his nails with fake anxiety. "'Moral turpitude, eh?' he said, giving me a nudge in the ribs. "'Oh, yes, one of the great ironies, my old man taking a moral stand of any kind, given his own outstanding turpitudinousness.' "'We single lads found our allotted rooms in a brownstone house just off 43rd Street, pretty much where the Times Building now stands. It was a depressing little dive, with the busy laundry in the basement and the damp odour of drying clothes permeating every room and landing.' Like all Carnot men, we were acutely aware of the company hierarchy, and so we naturally deferred to Charlie. Well, he said, stroking his chin, clearly the farther from the steamery the better. What do you think, Arthur? Shall you and I take the top-floor room? I blinked. Charlie wanted to share with me now. We could be living here for weeks, months even. Could I trust myself not to throttle him in his sleep? Oh, I said, I thought I'd be sharing with Freddy, as usual. Charlie beamed, completely unperturbed. Fine, you two take the top floor, Stan and I will be one below, and you chaps, he waved breezily at Albert, Frank, Bert and Mike, can take the two rooms on the first floor. As we dumped our luggage, Freddy grabbed my arm. What just happened? Did we just get the best room? What's the catch? No catch, I said. Just Charlie trying to stay on the right side of me. Inside the building, because of the sweaty humidity caused by the laundry constantly on the go, there were fingers of damp grey mould everywhere, reaching down from the ceilings and up from the stairs, so the title, Best Room, was a slightly hollow one in any case. We were only going to be there for a few weeks, so it wasn't like it was our job to fix it. But I did wonder how mouldy it was in the place where Charlie Griffiths himself was staying. We rode the trolley bus back up Broadway, and as the matinee approached, the Carnot dressing room was abuzz with excitement, the lads bouncing jokes off one another, throwing props and costumes around. The day before, we'd sleepwalked through the whole performance, both the matinee and the evening go, barely even noticing how we'd been received. Now, though, with a good night's rest and a couple of square meals under our belts, we were raring to go, and our professional pride was kicking in. This felt like the real first night, the start of our American adventure proper, and we were determined to put on a good show. Fred Carno's reputation ensured that we were the headline attraction, and the other acts on the bill were wary of us and more than a little resentful. There were fifteen of us, and so we had commandeered a substantial chunk of backstage real estate. The previous day our new colleagues had been preoccupied, but now, on this second night that felt like the first, they all gathered in the wings to watch us, coolly assessing whether we were worthy of holding top billing over them. So as the moment drew near for the wow-wows to begin, and the jaunty chords of our signature music rang out, we were on pins, nervous. Confident, certainly, but nervous, nonetheless. The Wowwows was billed as a farcical sketch in three scenes, the first of which was set at a campsite by a river. A group of young gents, played by yours truly, Mike Asher and Frank Melroyd, are getting up to face the day. My character, Blazer, is trying to shave, but keeps getting his elbow bumped by passing boatmen swinging oars around. Melroyd, as Bottles, "'moans about always having to pay for the fourth member of our party, "'one Archibald Binks, who never opens his wallet "'for fear that his collection of moths might escape. "'Early on, we were not expecting too much response from the audience. "'The real laughs were due to arrive with the entrance of Binks, "'who was Charlie Chaplin, of course. "'On he came, in his two white makeup looking like death warmed up, "'with one end of his moustache pointing up and the other down.' When we performed the sketch in England, his very appearance would start the crowd a-sniggering, but here in New York City you could almost hear the audience thinking, "'Come on, then, you dumb limeys, make us laugh.'" Charlie's first gag was to hold out a teacup to Frank Melroyd, saying, "'I say, Bottles, do you mind giving me a little water?' Bottles replies, "'Certainly. What do you want it for?' And then Charlie's topper, "'I want to take a bath.'" In England, this used to go down big, setting Binks up as the sort of upper-class twit that the musical would reliably milk for laughs. Here, though, nothing. Nothing at all. Charlie blinked hard, knowing, as we all did, that the next few minutes were all in this vein. On came Amy Minister as Lydia, Archie's girlfriend, to ask about his morning dip. "'Did the water come up to your expectations?' "'No, only up to my knees.' We'd have taken a groan, frankly, anything to indicate that the audience were still actually alive. But no, there was just the same cavernous indifference to our efforts. Once Archibald Binks departs, my character, Blazer, would take the lead as we make a plan to revenge ourselves on the skinflint by faking an initiation into a secret society, inflicting various indignities upon our number one. The audience actually perked up at this a little bit, quite keen to see Chaplin hurt. We ploughed grimly on through the second scene, where Binks was prepared for the ordeal ahead, and then the climactic third scene of the initiation itself. For this, we all wore long black robes and conical headpieces that concealed our faces, which felt like a blessing at that time, I can tell you. The get-up was Carno's idea, and he based it on some ecclesiastical picture he'd seen of monks in Spain. We genuinely had no notion that our costumes had any other resonance than that, not until The Birth of a Nation came out. Anyway... There was no end of silly business, paddling poor Binks back and forth as he howled and electrocuting him on a so-called magic carpet, before we reveal ourselves and let him know why he has been taught such a salutary lesson. The slapstick of the finale went down a little better than the opening, but not much, and the feeling lingered that the audience had only enjoyed the humiliation of the main character because they really didn't like him. At the end, we slunk off stage into the wings, stunned and humbled, and just stared at one another wide-eyed. Most of our American colleagues seem to have drifted away during the course of the performance, but at my side, all of a sudden, was Edgar Pendulo, hypnotist and mind-reader. He gave me a sorrowful look and whispered, "'Never mind, old Bean. Perhaps tomorrow I could go on and hypnotise the whole audience into thinking they're British. What, what?' He smirked unpleasantly then, and sidled off to tell someone else his brilliant witticism. "'I think that may have been the very start of my hatred for Americans trying to do a British accent.' "'We told ourselves that the matinee was a fluke, "'just one of those crowds you sometimes get. "'But the second house was no better, "'and it was a dispirited bunch that gathered to drown their sorrows "'in the bar around the corner at the end of the night. "'I told him,' Charlie said, shaking his head over his glass of port. "'I told the Governor we shouldn't do the wow-wows, "'but he was convinced that it was just the thing for America. "'He's got it into his head somehow "'that the place is just crawling with secret societies.' "'Secret societies of silly Englishmen, though,' I said, doubtfully.' Exactly my point, Arthur, exactly. It's too English, isn't it, with its lame puns and its endless haw-hawing. The pantomime parts, the business with the oars at the beginning, and the initiation, they're universal enough to play, but the rest of it is just too... English, said Stan. Right, it's too parochial. The fact is, the Wow was simply a dud, not fit to lace the boots of the football match, let alone toss a derisory orange at mumming birds. We all knew it, we all hated it, and we all knew we were stuck with it. It'll be all right, Tilly said. No carnot company has ever failed in America. There's a first time for everything, Charlie muttered darkly.
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot...
1: Chapter 4. Blithering, blathering Englishmen Twice a day for the rest of that week we attempted to breathe life into our much-hated show but without success. The audiences remained determinedly unimpressed and our American colleagues began to avoid us backstage as though we had the plague. One night we stood in the wings waiting to go on and Charlie was next to me in his pale drunk's makeup, and he whispered It feels like we're lining up to get shot. He got no argument from me. And then on the Friday, Variety came out. This weekly rag was a 40-page trawl through everything connected with vaudeville, principally the New York scene, but gathering titbits from all around the world to pack its pages. That autumn, I remember reading the salacious developments in the Dr Crippen case, which qualified as a Variety story because his missing wife, Bella Elmore, had been a British musical artiste. There was a particular slang used in Variety that you had to pick up. You would read, for instance, that Irwin and Herrang are at the Fulton Brooklyn this week for their New York opening on the Morris Time. This meant that the act in question were going to be working on the Morris Circuit of vaudeville houses beginning in New York. Time was the word used to describe the various circuits an act could be hired to play. So if, for example, you were working the Pantage's Circuit, you would say you are on Pantage's Time. In those days, there were any number of circuits of all sizes. The big time, such as the Keith and Orpheum circuit, was where you would find the top acts, such as Mr Al Jolson or Houdini, and they would be playing large theatres in big cities across the country. Less prominent acts you might find plugging away at a more modest list of venues limited to a particular city or state, working small time. It was trivial stuff, maybe, but there was no getting away from the fact that vaudeville was very big business indeed. The must-read pages contained the reviews of vaudeville acts, with nothing escaping their gaze nor their withering scorn. A variety review could make or break a vaudeville act in less time than it took to read the thing. We were new to the New York scene, of course, and so were not expecting it, but one of the other acts had helpfully left a copy on the dressing table in our room, lying open at the offending page. The reviewer began by describing Charlie as typically English and he didn't give the impression that this was a good thing. Despite this, he grudgingly reckoned that Chaplin will do for America. However, he went on to dismiss the rest of us as the most remarkable collection of blithering, blathering Englishmen New York has seen in many a day. Most of us were pretty cast down by this, but those who were most dismissive of the wow-wows were feeling vindicated. Tilly brandished the paper with what looked like triumph. See? What have I been saying? Listen, the three women in the act are not needed. "'One has a scene with a comedian. That's Amy, of course. "'The others simply walk on and off a couple of times. "'I hate the wow-wows. Hate it!' "'Fired up by this, an impromptu council of war "'assembled in the bar after the Friday night show. "'Poor Alf Reeves was in the hot seat, "'fingering his bow-tie nervously, "'surrounded by a surly and unhappy mob.' Charlie, as the number one, should really have been taking the lead, but he sat still, detached, legs crossed, inspecting his nails. So I stepped up, banged the table and began. Listen, everyone, it's not been a good week. We all know that. And now there's this piece in Variety that's going to hang around our necks wherever we go. What can we do? Everyone had an opinion, it seemed, and they were all versions of the same one. Dump the wow-wows. Bring out Jimmy the Fearless or London suburbia or mumming birds. How about it, Alf, I said. "'We could drop the wowos, and we all know mummingbirds, I'm sure. "'We've all played it before, back in England.' "'Hear, hear!' came the cry from all parts, "'along with a nodding hum of confirmation that this was a feasible plan of action. "'Alf raised his hands for silence, and the urgent murmuring died down. "'I know that's what you all want,' he said, "'but there's simply no chance.' "'Why not?' Charlie asked languidly. "'The last three Carnot companies who've come over here have played mummingbirds, "'that's why. It's run its course.' The Governor wants to break this new thing in, and he's convinced it will play. You want to tell the Governor he's wrong? Charlie blinked, and the rest of us looked at our beers. No, I thought not. You want me to do it for you, that's it, isn't it? Well, no, thank you very much. We're going to give it a fair go, and that's all we can do. Understood? The next week we moved to the Alhambra, where the Wow Wows was no better received. Charlie was pulling out all the stops, throwing in new bits of business, introducing fresh pratfalls and extravagant mugging, but all to no avail. It was clearly beginning to get him down, and he stopped coming to the bar for a drink afterwards, gloomily disappearing into the night. I wanted to talk to Tilly about this, and about how things were going generally, but it wasn't proving easy to grab a moment with her. After the performances we would all, apart from Charlie of course, tip into the bar next door and commandeer a large table. If I could, I would take the seat next to Tilly, but more often than not, I would find that Frank Melroyd had taken the opportunity to shuffle in beside her, sometimes even trapping her in a booth. He was a funny fish, Frank. He would sit next to her all evening, not saying much, just enjoying his proximity to a pretty girl. It was infuriating, not least because he was so intent on holding on to this prime spot that he very rarely made a trip to the bar. And then, whenever we decided to head for our accommodations, he would be steering Tilly to the trolley bus or sometimes calling a cab for the two of them, which he could afford with all the cash he was saving, not buying anyone a drink, by the way, and making sure that he was the one who saw her safely to her door. On one occasion he was so anxious not to miss out on this chivalrous little treat that he stood squarely on my foot and clumsily shoved me face first into a hat stand. So one morning I strode the five blocks over to the brownstone building where Tilly was staying and knocked on the front door. It was opened by a sturdy woman whose features seemed set in a permanent frown. "'Good morning, madam,' I said in my most polite English manner. "'Is Miss Beckett at home?' "'No gentlemen callers allowed in the rooms,' the landlady said firmly. "'Of course,' I said. "'I wouldn't dream of suggesting otherwise. "'But I'm a colleague of hers, and if you would be so kind as to let Miss Beckett know "'that I am here, then perhaps she would like to take the air.' The woman grunted, shoved the door almost to, and disappeared into the darkness, leaving me standing on the step. After a minute or two, Tilly appeared in a rush, still fastening a hat to her hair, and we set off along the street with the landlady watching us all the way. I could feel her dark little eyes boring into the back of my skull. Thank goodness you came over, Arthur, Tilly said, taking my arm. I was going stir-crazy in there. Emily means well, but, you know, I did. Emily Seaman was one of those people who think of themselves as bouncy and irrepressible, and consequently was quite tiring company. The first time she greeted you with the phrase... "'Hello! Wonderful to see me, isn't it?' Or responded to an offer to put the kettle on with a chirpy, "'It won't fit you!' was all well and good, but over and again, every single day, was enough to make a saint start grinding his or her teeth. "'Let's head for the park, shall we?' We took the trolley up to Central Park and strolled in down a wide avenue that was already pretty heavily populated with walkers, many of them ladies with spud-faced children in bassinets swaddled to within an inch of their lives.' "'Ah!' Tilly sighed, her spirits visibly lifted by the trees and the open air. "'You know, if you want to avoid that battle-axe, "'there are two mornings a week where she attends a temperance gathering "'to conger her weakness for the demon drink.' "'Oh, really?' I said. "'Yes. Apparently they're hosted by a rather striking gentleman "'from the Hellfire and Brimstone School of Performing, "'and she has a considerable weakness for him as well. "'She's under his spell, eh? "'I've heard you speaking about the... "'what do you call it, when things are going well?' "'The power, do you mean?' Yes, that's it, the power. It sounds tremendous. The power was the name I'd given to that feeling of control that I had on stage when the audience was completely under my spell. I first felt it back in Cambridge when doing an impersonation of my head porter father at a college smoking concert, and had felt it periodically since. It was an intoxicating feeling, and one that I'd not enjoyed at all while performing the Wow Wows, let me assure you of that. I'd forgotten that I'd even mentioned it to Tilly. I'm not sure it was a subject I would have broached with any of the lads for fear that they would rib me about it mercilessly. "'I should like to feel something like that,' she went on. "'I have approached it, I think, on occasion. "'Sometimes, you know, even when I'm just one of a dozen girls on stage, "'I can feel that the whole audience is watching me.' "'I can imagine,' I said gallantly. "'I know I would not be watching anyone else.' "'Ha!' she said. "'You know, with Charlie I think it's different. "'He's always pursuing the perfect performance, "'one where he ticks absolutely every box.' He wants to get every single laugh that is in there and touch people at the same time, but he never talks about controlling the audience in the way that you do. He feels, I think, that if he gets everything just right, then he will naturally get the reaction he deserves as is due. It doesn't seem to be happening at the moment, I said. I know, and I think it's hitting him quite hard. Tilly frowned. Well, it's not exactly a picnic for the rest of us, is it? I know, I know, but I do feel sorry for him. He feels it's all on his shoulders, you know? We strolled on a little further. "'One day,' Tilly said suddenly, "'one day I should like to be sent to stage "'Well, I'm afraid the Governor's repertoire isn't exactly stocked with roles for leading ladies.' "'No, I know. Perhaps not with Carnot. But at least a woman can think of making herself a career on the halls, can she not? "'After all, who's a bigger star than Mary Lloyd?' "'Well, no one. Maybe Roby, And he's your hero, isn't he?' "'He is,' I agreed.' "'And so if you dream of becoming George Roby, "'why should I not dream of becoming the next Mary Lloyd, "'or Vesta Tilly, or Florrie Ford, or Fanny Bryce?' "'No reason. No reason at all,' I said. "'I just wish I could show what I can do. "'There's just no chance in the stupid wow-wows, "'for I'm required to do nothing, nothing at all in the comedy line. "'I walk on, I walk off. "'I might as well be a shop-mannequin on casters.' "'I had to admit she had a point, and I was surprised, actually, "'because Tilly had never really spoken about her own ambitions before.' "'Maybe she had, and I'd been too busy talking about mine to listen. "'So you want to be the next Mary Lloyd, then? "'What's wrong with that?' she said sharply. "'Nothing. Nothing at all,' I said quickly. "'Time was getting on, and so I looked around to try and spot "'which path would lead to an exit from the park. "'As I did so, I thought I saw a familiar figure a little way off. "'Isn't that?' I said, my hand half raising to wave a greeting, "'but the figure had turned and gone behind a fountain, "'and then was lost in a crowd of perambulators. "'Who?' I thought I saw Frank Melroyd. No, really. Just out for a bit of a walk, I expect. Yes, Tilly murmured, turning thoughtful. Speaking of ambitions, I realised I was less preoccupied with the idea of becoming the company number one just then. In fact, I'd hardly thought about it at all since we landed on foreign shores. Had I come to terms with Charlie's superiority now, was I prepared to concede him his ultimate triumph? Not likely. For the time being, I was content to be a mere foot-soldier and let Captain Chaplin carry the can for the wow-wow's debacle. In fact, we were all going through the motions, rather. That evening, though, the performance was livened up by an unexpected incident. During the opening scene, my character, Blazer, tries to shave at the campsite, while a passing boatman, played by Stan Jefferson, swings a great oar around the place, nearly knocking me over. Stan and I had worked out some careful near-misses, and it was usually a serviceable enough piece of slapstick. On this night, though, Stan swished his oar past my head a couple of times, and it was a hefty wooden item, by the way, pretty solid, and then headed for the wings as per, when suddenly Frank Melroyd, as my supposed chum Bottles, leapt to his feet, grabbed the oar, and back swung it straight at my face. Well, it was a surprise, and no mistake. Fortunately, my reflexes were at their best on stage, and I was able to fling myself backwards to avoid the swipe, and also managed to duck the return, which swished past my ear. I gasped. Steady on, for, uh, I mean Bottles, old chap! "'I landed on my backside, and in my confusion "'I thought I heard a strange sound, "'a sound we hadn't heard for a while. "'It was the sound of an audience, laughing. "'In the dressing-room afterwards, "'I gave Melroyd a shove in the chest. "'Blimey, Frank, what were you thinking? "'You damn nearly knocked my block off!' "'Frank shrugged. "'It was just a bit of business. "'I thought of it on the spur of the moment, "'thought it might perk things up. "'It's certainly got a laugh,' Stan said, somewhat dubiously. "'Just then Charlie came in "'and said the first words he'd spoken to any of us for days.' "'Yes. Well done, Mr Melroyd. "'If only the rest of you were trying as hard, "'maybe we wouldn't be in the pickle we find ourselves in.' "'In our third week, we played the Bronx Theatre. "'This was a brand-new venue, "'opened just a fortnight before with a great fanfare, "'and it was the most prestigious booking we had.' They ran shows from 1 o'clock in the afternoon to 11.30 at night, so it was a slog of a week, especially the long, slow cab drive back from 145th Street over the 3rd Avenue Bridge and through Harlem, counting off the streets all the way down to 43rd. The Bronx was a rough sort of area, but the crowd was generally upwards of 2,000, which greatly increased the odds of some patrons being tickled by the wow-wows and carrying the thing along. "'Humiliatingly, however, the bill was changed around on the Thursday, "'and we went from top of the bill to closing the first half, "'an unheard-of demotion for a Carnot troop in America or anywhere else. "'Alf took it on the chin. "'I just hope to God the Governor never gets to hear about it,' he muttered bleakly. "'For Charlie, however, this indignity was the final straw, "'and he plunged even further into the depths of his depression.' On the Saturday night he was so low that Stan cornered Freddie and me in the corridor behind the wings and confided that he was beginning to worry about our number one. As his roommate and his understudy, Stan was closer to Chaplin than any of us and was privy to the full range of his moods. "'Listen, lads,' he said, keeping his voice down. "'After the show tonight, come straight back to 43rd Street with me and Charlie. "'We need to cheer him up and have an idea that a bit of home cooking might do the trick. "'Save us all the bob too two as well, eh?' "'Freddie and I agreed.' We'd already noticed our pay wasn't going very far in this brave new world. Perhaps we were spending too much of it drinking away our sorrows at the end of the night, but belts needed tightening. Home cooking, though, it sounded intriguing. So once the curtain came down on another dispiriting rendering of the cursed wow-wows, the four of us, Stan, Charlie, Freddie, and me, hustled straight for the trolleybus back downtown. Charlie was brooding, as usual, and communicating only in grunts, but Stan was effervescent and clutching a parcel of bacon and a couple of loaves of bread that he'd bought with our joint contributions between the bleak matinee and the grim evening show. We made our way up to Stan and Charlie's room on the second floor of our brownstone building with a certain amount of forced jollity trying to warm Charlie up, and we were fascinated to know how Stan proposed to cook up the meal without access to a kitchen. "'Are you going to take it down to the laundry and wait for it to steam slowly?' Freddy asked, "'because if you are, I'd like my money back.' "'No, no, we've got it all worked out, haven't we, Charlie?' Charlie sighed as if to say, "'Are we really going to do this?' But Stan's eager grin must have broken through the gloom, because suddenly something clicked on. He winked, and the two of them went into action. It was like watching a finely rehearsed little routine. In fact, one or other of them will certainly have used it at some point since.' Charlie whisked the lampshade off the gas jet. While seemingly out of thin air, Stan produced a skillet, which Freddy and I recognised merrily as filched from the campsite scene of the wow Wows. In went the bacon, and Stan climbed up onto a chair, placed with perfect timing by Charlie, so as to reach the flame. In a minute or two, the bacon was sizzling away nicely, and beginning to smoke. Now, cooking in the rooms was completely forbidden, of course, however nicely choreographed, but the possibility of detection by the landlady had been considered. Charlie briskly threw open the windows, then handed Freddy and me two towels, indicating by pantomime, as was his way when in this playful mood, that we were to waft the smoky smells out and away. Then he grabbed his violin and began to play, striding around the room ever more manically, getting into a character. This covered the telltale noise of the bacon sizzling, but also deterred any nosy parker from knocking on the door and disturbing the crazed maestro in full flow. So Stan reached up to tend to the pan like the greatest gas-jet chef in the world, Charlie whirled around a musical dervish, and young Fred and I wafted for all we were worth. I don't know when a meal was ever more fun, and when I ever worked up such an appetite. Mind you, bacon always has that effect on me, don't know about you. And for a short while at least, the aroma of a good old English fry-up blotted out the stench of our embarrassing American failure.